Hi, Anthems listeners. We've decided to do something a little different this time around. In honour of Transgender Awareness Week, we're bringing you five episodes that capture intimate, one-on-one discussions between pairs of trailblazers, creatives and activists. Amidst all the noise, it's time to platform the voices and discussions that you should be paying attention to. This conversation was also filmed, so check the episode description if you'd like to watch along. Anthems has always been a space for exceptional voices to celebrate and contemplate what it means to be human, and the conversation you're about to hear is no different. Welcome to Anthems Talks. This is Anthems. All the media debates are justify yourselves, explain yourselves. And, you know, usually in a context where whatever we say, we won't be accepted as doing that. If we're forced to do this writing for other publications, it's going to limit the remit. We're going to have to explain ourselves to cis people. And it just takes the fun and the sexiness (laughs) out of it, frankly. Trans people, non-binary people, gender non-conforming people, you look at our history over the last, like, 200 years or so and you know we've been sort of criminalized persecuted legislated against and our community you know as a whole does keep not just surviving but growing and evolving and changing i didn't transition to live a miserable life like i transitioned to be embodied and to enjoy having a body you know as long as there's people there'll be kind of ideas and there'll be ways to express them Hello, I'm Jackson King. I'm a writer, a columnist, and the founding editor of Irresistible Damage, which is a magazine for queer trans men. I write erotica, and I'm also a um, professional dominant. Hi, I'm Juliet Jakes. I'm a writer, filmmaker, broadcaster, academic, and sometime footballer. Your word of the day is culture. So we've both worked quite a lot in journalism and sometimes in mainstream journalism and sometimes in spaces that we've set up ourselves or friends of ours have set up. What do you think are the main issues facing the trans community in the media right now? Oh, where to begin? I think obviously we've got the emergence of really dangerous rhetoric that's taken over a lot of significant media outlets that do impact the views of many people in this country. I think we've got, I suppose, a lack of accountability as well for some of the things that are portrayed as news or or as fact about trans people. So I guess that's from a messaging side of things, but I think there's also kind of the institutional elements of journalism and media in general not very accessible for trans people for a number of reasons. And I think, you know, for the people that are able to kind of carve a space, it can often be quite limiting as well. How about you? What are your your thoughts? Yeah, well, I mean, firstly, I agree with all of that. And I would say that there has been a real narrowing of the space available in the media over the last decade. There was an interesting thing happening with the arrival of the internet Mm. and widely more widely accessible internet in the early 2000s. And a lot of people in the media and the public sphere thought it might be interesting to use that to try and democratize the media to some extent. And obviously the arrival of blogging and Twitter and 
certain new media was a way for new voices to kind of emerge and the mainstream media to mm -hmm. take on. I think what they found, especially after 2015, was that produced results that they didn't really like politically and, you know, in terms of certain activist movements. And I think ever since 2015, and particularly since the end of 2019, there's been a real effort to find ways to discourage new voices and particularly trans people from entering the media mm. and to kind of disempower, discourage, demotivate trans and non-binary writers who already existed. So you think yeah. back to 10 years ago and there were quite a few trans writers emerging within yeah. the mainstream, like myself included, and you won't see any of those in any major newspaper at this point. So there's definitely been a very well-funded and well-coordinated effort to re-establish like a transphobic position as the default position of every mainstream newspaper in this country. And I think that's difficult. And at the same time, the emergence of alternative spaces for people to write or kind of new media, whether that was venture capital funded or more grassroots, mm. and a lot of those have collapsed recently. You know, on one hand, you've seen the end of like BuzzFeed's attempts to be a kind of news and opinion organization. Yeah. And yeah, BuzzFeed was a, a very much a French capital funded project. And at the same time, places like Galdem shutting, yeah, a huge, uh, which huge is loss. a real, real loss. So the spaces where younger writers might emerge are sort of disappearing and, you know, the ongoing degradation of um, Elon Musk's Twitter means that that's no longer really a space where new voices, I think, can get a credible yeah. hearing. It does feel like we're in a particularly dark media timeline at the moment. You know, I look up to you as a journalist. You've been in this game a lot longer than I have. And as someone who's kind of fairly new to it, mm. I'm kind of like, what kind of choice have I made <laughs> the timing of this? And I'm often thinking about what is the future? How can journalism get funded? How can other voices and writers become part of this or set up their own things and for them to remain sort of sustainable and viable? I'm thinking of um, Autostraddle recently being bought out mm -hmm. by a, a sort of gender tracking app. So yeah, I guess I'm wondering sort of where do you see things going? It's a good question. And at the moment, yeah, I share your pessimism. My feeling is that things are worse than they were 10 years ago, Wow! but better than they were 20 years ago. Okay. So that's something, you know, trans people, non-binary people, gender non-conforming people, you look at our history over the last like 200 years or so, and, you know, we've been sort of criminalized, persecuted, you know, mm -hmm. killed, legislated against, and our community, you know, as a whole does keep not just surviving, but growing and evolving yeah. and changing. So, you know, as long as there's people, there'll be kind of ideas and there'll be ways to express them. It's hard for me to predict what that will be in this particular media moment, because yeah. if I knew what it was, I'd be trying to do it. <laughs> um, my feeling at the moment is that the best approach is to try and work sideways to the debates that are happening, quote unquote mm. debates that are happening in mainstream media. You know, the debates in mainstream media are structured in such a way as to make us not want to participate in them. Mm -hmm. You know, we're invited to talk only on terms that are like worse than useless to us. All the media debates are justify yourselves, explain yourselves, yeah. you know, usually in a context where whatever we say, we won't be accepted as doing that. So I think it's better to work through culture. And I think it's better to work through um, 
some of the sort of things you're doing on irresistible damage, which we'll come onto in a bit, with you know interesting opinion pieces, cultural criticism, spaces that sort of serve a sort of community organising function. And I think at this point, that's probably more useful than just trying to argue directly with people who don't really think we should be allowed to exist. This is, yeah, often how I felt because in a way you sort of don't want to try and play them at their own game because it's it's fixed, you know, we're, we're never going to win that way. And I thought it was really interesting what you said about working sideways, thinking about culture. And I suppose that is something that maybe isn't talked about as much in sort of like activist circles is the impact that kind of cultural engagement can have on, I suppose, moving the dial forward on these things. That certainly was the vision for me when I set up Irresistible Damage. I mean, it's there in the name. It's kind of referencing the discourse and the debate, but sort of just kind of doing a cheeky two fingers up to it and actually saying that we're more than that and that we want to have conversations beyond can we exist we want to have conversations about pleasure and specifically sexual pleasure as well. I think that's certainly a huge thing for me because, of course, a huge part of the sort of trans debate is stigmatization of our bodies and how do we talk about bodies and pleasure in a way that kind of just discards that. I have pretty much exclusively worked through other people's platforms. Going back, I mean, my journalistic career began about 20 years ago when I was writing for uh, film magazines, mostly like experimental film magazines. But whether I've written for LGBT publications, more mainstream sort of news, media, arts publications, which is most of what I do now, or sort of fictional stuff. I mean, I do a lot of more creative writing as well. You know, I have never made any attempt to set up my own publication or publishing house or anything uh, in the way that you're doing. And it struck me for some of the reasons we talked about earlier, like that's an incredibly difficult thing to be doing at this point. So I wonder if you'd like to talk a bit more about why, why you've done it and, you know, who's reading maybe and how it's sustaining itself. So I guess the origin story is I'd been reading a little bit about Drama Magazine, which was this kind of gay leather magazine in the... I want to say 70s and 80s, I think that's about right, which had a huge impact on kind of shaping sort of gay men's like leather culture and things like that. And I just found it so exciting, the idea that a piece of media could have such an impact on gay communities like globally. And I guess I've been thinking a lot about trying to encourage, I guess what I would see as a sort of emerging sort of trans fag culture not just here, but in the States and in other places. And I thought, well, if we're forced to do this writing for other publications, it's going to limit the remit. We're going to have to explain ourselves to cis people. And it just takes the fun and the sexiness <laughs> out of it, frankly. So I kind of, yeah, took the, took the leap, decided to set it up, see if people were interested. And just the responses have been really, really encouraging. You know, people writing in to say that they're a trans fag and, you know, this magazine has helped them understand themselves in that way and also given them the courage to go out and have these experiences in queer men's spaces 
to do things like cruising as a trans guy and stuff. So for me, that it really was always about serving the community, which I think is kind of another way I'm seeing people navigate this current media landscape, which is rather than trying to be so broad church, being very specific and, and very niche. It is a strange thing in politics that, and yet what we do is political, uh, that, you know, a situation can seem completely hopeless. Mm. And then suddenly there's some opening somewhere that you maybe weren't expecting or comes about because people were kind of complacent or not really mm. paying much attention. And then you can sort of seize an opportunity and then people can sort of mobilise and organise and kind of come together surprisingly quickly. Yeah. Um, those things can also be smashed quite quickly as well. But yeah, I think in, you know, a time of difficulty and reaction, yeah, the thing we can do is keep sustaining our communities and keep kind of doing groundwork so that when the opportunity comes to sort of fight back on a bigger scale, mm -hmm. we've, we've done the preparation for that. Yeah. You know, a lot of the trans writers who 10, 15 years ago were sort of gaining ground in mainstream media were able to do that because, you know, we and a lot of other people had spent years writing, thinking, organizing, making art, film and music, you know, away from the mainstream and kind of developing our ideas and gave us something that we could take to mainstream media. I love the idea of that, yeah, sort of grassroots stuff, having this this sort of later life or other legacy that it kind of brings when the moment or the opportunity comes up. And I guess on that note, I wanted to hear sort of how it was for you in 2010, you were sort of documenting your transition. And I, I was thinking a lot about just the kind of the confessional element of that. Was that something that felt very vulnerable at the time? Did it feel empowering? How you feel? Has that changed since then? Yeah, this is a really interesting question because this is stuff I have talked about an awful lot, but not for a really long time now. Mm. Probably not really significantly since my memoir came out, which was based on the book and published in, yeah. uh, based on the Guardian series and published in uh, 2015. I mean, I did become very interested in this idea of confessional writing. Mm. Um, I sort of stumbled into doing that Guardian column. One of my closest friends is a, another writer called Joe Stretch. And we met at university and we were both trying to write and we were constantly sharing bits of writing and other creative projects with each other. I think the first week I started living as, as a woman after coming out as transsexual, I spoke to Joe on the phone. He asked me how it was all going and I talked to him about, you know, coming out at work and dealing with people on the street and just how certain, you know, everyday things like going to the shops have been complicated. Mm. And Joe just said, look, you should, you know, do a blog on this for The Guardian. I'll bite your hand off. And I said, look, Joe, The Guardian's record on trans stuff is really bad. And Joe said, that's all the more reason to do it. And I was like, yep, yeah, okay, I'm convinced. <laughs> um, so cut a very long story short, I managed to find my way to a sympathetic editor and the Guardian's broad position did seem to be quite transphobic at that point. But what I sort of realised was that, you know, the Guardian's a big organisation. Okay, it has an overall editor who, at the time, was Alan Rusbridger, who, as far as I could tell, certainly at that point, didn't have a strong opinion on this subject one way or the other. Mm. There were certainly people writing, if not editing, for the comment desk who definitely had a strong opinion Right. against trans people. Okay. But I went to the life and style section, which, you know, each section had a reasonable amount of autonomy. So I wasn't working through comment, having to argue with, yeah. you know, a, a small roster of um, hostile 
writers. It was it was a space where I could set my own terms within the mainstream, and that was really interesting. I mean, working in the mainstream, there are obviously limits to what I could say. Yeah. But because it was this open-ended blog, I mean, okay, I only had 900 words at a time, but it was kind of open-ended. And I think what it did, and one of the things I was aiming to do with it, was to prove to editors who were always saying, oh, like, people aren't really interested in trans subjects, mm. that people were interested in trans people and non-binary people mm. talking about their own lives and their own language and opening up a sort of wider discourse where he could talk about, you know, housing, the law, yeah. the medical system. And of course, what happened after a few years was people realised, oh, there's an audience for trans people talking about their own experiences and their own language, and we don't want there to be. So we're getting yeah. rid of that again. I was going to ask about, you know, do you think that could happen today? Um, that, th that column, yeah. Um, I think you probably would be able to find somebody at The Guardian who would want to commission something like that. I mean, mm. not exactly like that because, you know, it's already been done. And to be honest, in 2010, doing a kind of transition diary already felt like quite a kind of backwards product looking project hmm. already you know a lot of trans and non-binary people were just like well look you know this obviously isn't for us hmm. because we've heard these stories a thousand times already and yeah i mean i was looking more outwards to try and sort of change the wider context we're writing and almost kind of create my own audience for the kind of writing i really wanted to do yeah although there would also be very organized and very vocal vocal opposition to it from some of their senior writers, I think, some of their more high profile writers in different fields, I think would, would be much more oppositional to it now than they were in 2010. I think the main deterrent would actually be that, you know, that space has been made so kind of hostile and toxic for trans and non-binary writers. Yeah. I mean, I had some opposition at the time because it's like, well, you shouldn't write for like a transphobic publication. And I said, yes, I see where you're coming from. But what I'm doing is oppositional to the editorial policy and it is an attempt this to change it, it. Yeah. uh so i thought it was worth doing and for a while it looked like it was working for you know two or three years it was sort of frustrating and there were setbacks but it felt like things were getting better and my prediction with the sort of guardian new statesman the sort of more ostensibly liberal liberal ish british media spaces is that they're not going to actually apologize for any of this yeah they're going to quietly pretend it never happened. Classic. Yeah. And I mean, I would quite like an apology, but if they just stop doing it, that's better than carrying it's better on. Than nothing. Yeah. But yeah. Like, um, <laughs> and maybe this will become slightly more of a kind of broad left right issue in the way that it has in the States, I think, or sort of okay. left yeah. right issue. And again, I think that's something we can keep pushing for. But I think. You know, at the time, I mean, you asked me a bit about vulnerability and this kind of burden of um, representation. You know, I did unwittingly shoulder quite a lot of that by writing a bit out on a limb at The Guardian and being mm. for a while this kind of like main trans voice there. And of yeah. course other people uh, emerged and, you know, we made more space for trans writers. So I think now if we're going to kind of try and work within those spaces and change the culture of those spaces, it would have to be people doing maybe slightly more one-off things so that there isn't like one or a small number of people yeah, shouldering all of that. Sort of greater variety of yeah. voices and experiences. So you wrote Frontlines, mm -hmm. trans journalism. I mean, this is a compilation of my trans journalism from the last 15 years or so, yeah. 
in the introduction to Frontlines, you talk about this idea that media is never without sort of bias, Mm -hmm. like it's never perfectly objective. I would love to hear a little bit more about your thoughts on that. Yeah, well, it can't be objective. You know, if you're a human being who is interested in ideas and in politics and the way the world works, like you're going to have positions on things and, you know, maybe they're conscious, maybe they're not, maybe they're positions you're proud to be holding, maybe Mm. they're positions that you know, you know, maybe are coming from a place that is slightly less rational, but something that has like an emotional resonance for you, like whatever. Yeah, nobody, nobody is objective. You know, also, I think there's, you know, not particularly useful understanding of what the idea of objective even is. I mean, you know, in any conflict, there's this idea that just objective is saying an equal number of nice and less nice things about both sides. <laughs> and it's like, no, to me, you know, it's, it's about sort of thinking about what is fair. Mm. and what is right then that requires you to have a certain moral compass and of course people will disagree about that i try to be of a mindset that you know if i learn more about a subject and the facts kind of contradict the position i started with and i try and move to move with the facts i suppose it's it's just the classic thing of whenever there's a a marginalized group then they're subjective but you know the sort of oppressor group is always objective and just telling the facts. Yeah, I've always been very wary of this idea of the objectivity of media and news media in particular. I think we all know that it doesn't really exist because we all know that if you want a sort of one spin on a situation, you go to this paper. If you want another spin, you go to that. So for me, I just kind of find it really frustrating that there's a sort of dishonesty about these kind of objectivity claims. And it'd be, I don't know, just much more refreshing to be like, well, actually, this is the perspective that we're writing or looking at this from. I mean, I think it's better to do that because it's the only thing you can control. Mm. Um, I mean, I really do think at this point that like the British public sphere, certainly in terms of legacy media, is just in absolute ruins. I mean, it's just a smouldering crater at this point. You know, there are far too many bad faith writers Mm. and bad faith publications, quite frankly. Yeah. And... You know, I think those things still have a significant influence on politics and on how people perceive politics. But I think the number of people who really trust any legacy media, I think is vanishingly small now. Opinion Mm. polls are all bearing that out. And I think with very good reason, to be honest. So maybe, you know, sort of just sticking a flag in the ground and saying, this is my personal position. This is the position I'm writing from is a lot more honest at this point. And I wanted to ask you about your experience of, of writing from lived experience. I mean, in lots of ways, you're coming from like a more marginal subject position, I think more so than than I am. And, you know, does that make you feel that you have to kind of stake out a personal position before you can contribute to discourses? Or does working primarily in spaces that you set up yourself mean you don't really have to do that so much? What's, what's that sort of experience been like for you? Yeah, that's a good question. The word that comes to mind is and it's a bit of an overused word, but is unapologetic. I think, you know, whether I'm sort of writing for like maybe my own publication or if someone else has commissioned me, I really try to <laughs> try to be as blunt um, and as perhaps maybe provoca- deliberately provo- provocative with it as I can at times, because I think I'm quite, And I think many people from different marginalized backgrounds are quite exhausted by this need to sort of tone police ourselves or to over explain ourselves or to frame things in ways that are perhaps a little bit more 
digestible to certain demographics. So in some ways, I think I kind of lean hard the other way into sort of dialing it up and being a little bit more out there. I think the other side to it for me is making it fun, making it playful, because there's so much kind of heaviness and trauma around these conversations. And I think a way for me to avoid kind of getting pulled into that is to, yeah, is to write in a way that maybe I would speak with like my friends and to cover topics that maybe are a little bit juicier or things that I'm actually personally interested in. Obviously, you've got sort of more leeway to do that with your own stuff, but it is always something that I try to to bring to any publication that I write for. Yeah. And I mean, can we talk a bit about writing about sex? Let's do it. Because like, I mean, I, I haven't written about it that much and, you know, to some extent due to, you know, lack of developments in my own personal life. But like, I did write a long essay a few years ago, which is in Frontline's about why it's historically been difficult for trans women particularly to write Mm. about sex and the sort of pressures from gender identity clinics, internalised transphobia within individuals, within the community, and of course from kind of hostile outsiders, why that's tended to mean that trans women until I think quite recently haven't written about sex that much. But I wonder how much you've written about it, what it means to you to write about it, what the kind of pressures that you're navigating are. Yeah, well, I think I'm really glad that you kind of brought up the sort of trans misogyny aspect of it because it definitely is more challenging and harder, I think, for trans women to write as openly about sex and all sorts of things as I might because of, hate to keep going back to it, but the debate and, you know, all of the ways in which, yeah, that sort of trans misogynistic discourse leads to I suppose just punishing trans women's sexualities and desires. I think for myself, the pleasure of it is in writing about pleasure. Yeah, there's so much sort of like negativity and suffering and things like that. And I suppose I didn't transition to live a miserable life. Like I transitioned to enjoy living and I transitioned to be embodied and to enjoy having a body. And so I think for me, that's what a huge part of my sex writing is about, is moving away from a defense of a right to exist or a defense of a right to have a sexuality like anybody else. I'm particularly interested in, you know, talking about sort of queer trans men sexualities, because I think that that is something that's perhaps less, um, less present in the public imagination. If I have my way, then that will change and is changing. So, you know, I kind of want to be part of contributing to conversations and culture around uh, transfag sexualities, which sort of translates into into real life change. So we're seeing exciting things like there is now a trans men's sauna night in Manchester, which has opened up, which I'm very excited about. Obviously, there are things like T-Boys and Testo Hunky, but my passion is to kind of see see there be more of a sort of celebration of like transfag sexualities in queer spaces and in queer men's spaces. You know, we talked earlier about the collapse of spaces like Galdem and mm. the difficulties of um, 
of running alternative media spaces, you know, what can people, whether they're within our community or supportive of it, what can they do to help? Oh, this is such a tricky question because the landscape at the moment is so complicated and there's so many different challenges. I suppose some of the things that come to mind are if people are able to, to perhaps be kind of financial supporters of some of these sort of smaller publications or outlets, particularly trans ones or ones which are trans run. That also might look like supporting a trans writer on Substack as well. If it's not necessarily a publication, then supporting them, following them, sharing their content, just to kind of broaden the range of voices that we're hearing from and enable people to have the time and the resources to actually keep writing. You know, we're living in a cost of living crisis. <laughs> writing doesn't pay a lot. So I think the main thing is open your purse. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's interesting for me because, yeah, like I said earlier, I have to focus my efforts on writing in other people's spaces. Mm. And I think for me, then that question's slightly easier to answer. Like if you're a journalist with a platform in a big publication and you have an ethical or moral problem with the way trans people are being written about and treated in this country, then fight it. Use yeah. your space. I mean, maybe not every week, but, you know, you can, again, put you know tie your colours to the mast, pink and blue mostly, and, you know, publicly support us and just hold the line. Yeah, uh, And there are, there are good people doing that, but you know, it's very difficult for us to keep doing that because, you know, we're just, have been very deliberately beaten down and exhausted yes. by all of this. So for people who maybe aren't quite as invested in it to spread that burden, yes, I think is, is really important. Really agree. I think burnout is such a common phrase <laughs> in the trans community common feeling, yeah. and it's such a common feeling as you say, but What's energizing you at the moment? What exciting That's a good new question. projects? I mean, or... Given the state of things, actually, it's kind of anger mm. at yeah. the way, you know, trans things have played out in this country and just, you know, the way efforts to deal with kind of austerity and inequality have been crushed. Yeah. A lot of what's driving me now is just pure rage. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> I mean, it's a power, you know, it's a powerful emotion. You know, it's not one you want to exclusively be working with. It's not mm, one you want to be yeah. filled with because hatred does kind of consume you, as we've seen happen to a few transphobic mm, yeah. um, writers and cultural figures in this country. But, you know, a feeling of like wanting to document what was done mm. and to document it creatively. I mean, I've just written a play called We Need to Talk, mm. which is set. It's an hour long. And it's set, so it's set in real time. And that hour is the hour that lockdown was announced in March 2020. So a big inciting incident in the play is the characters sitting around the radio and listening to Boris Johnson announce this lockdown. And they're all kind Flashbacks. of... Well, exactly. Yeah, I mean, it's a really <laughs> powerful moment. Um, and it was a really interesting moment to work in. But basically, you know, what this does is put that in the context of the 2019 election and, you know, the... Yeah staggering wave of like lying wrecking disinformation dishonesty and the difficulties of working through british mainstream media and the sort of premise of the play is that there are all these different modes of communication and different places you can get your information yeah and not just information but your whole sort of like way of framing that information understanding it from different places and so in the play you've got three characters like one of whom was a 
a very big Jeremy Corbyn supporter, one of whom has already voted for Keir Starmer in the Labour leadership election, <laughs> and one of whom is like a Lib Dem. Okay. And, you know, three of them all kind of, you know, anti-Tory and particularly anti-Johnson, but, you know, they've, they've all got these sort of different ways of yeah. understanding what's just happened and what's going to happen. Yeah. And it's quite interesting writing kind of into the present at the moment. I mean, that's, you know, what you often do in journalism. Yes, exactly. You know, journalism, you know, largely is sort of trying to understand what's happening now. Mm. But it's quite interesting to be doing it in creative projects. I'm definitely feeling drawn to writing that's more creative and more sort of long form as well, rather than sort of the limited word, word count that you get in a magazine or a newspaper or something. So I'm currently working on a book proposal, which is very exciting. And I guess without giving too much away, I think it's really about, I guess instead of really engaging with the present and what's going on, it's really about looking back to the past and looking at cultural, heritage, ancestral connections and you know what does that have to say about me now today so yeah i think that's kind of where i'm getting my energy from is almost by tapping out <laughs> tapping out of the discourse and um, i suppose trying to tap into some other source well lovely to chat to you yeah really good to chat it's been lovely hopefully we'll get to do it again sometime For resources about the issues discussed, and to see video content from all episodes of the Anthems Talks series, visit the episode description. Anthems Talks was executive produced by B. Duncan, with production from Talia Augustidis and Lucy Carr, and sound engineered by Ben Williams. Video production from Thunder Video, and video editing by Eleanor Bamba. This is a Broccoli Production. Broccoli.